0: Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am your host, Joe Devine, and I'm just here to introduce today's episode. We did something a little bit different. I spoke to James Montague, who's a writer, author, regular TIFO contributor. I wouldn't normally do uh, an introduction like this, but I'm just here to tell you that today I had a bit of an audio mishap um, and I recorded myself at a uh, slightly lower audio quality than I normally would. Don't know what happened there, but um, unfortunately I can't fix it. I'm very disappointed because, uh, personally I think it's a wonderful episode, it's always a pleasure to speak to James, he's a fascinating guy with the most fascinating stories in football journalism and I hope you will agree, everything is audible so there's no problems there, I just, uh, it's just a little bit of a bugbear of mine, mainly I'm here to complain at you about a mistake I made and also apologise. Uh, so uh, sorry about that but you really won't notice after five minutes uh, next week audio levels and uh, quality will be back to its uh, its best which is pretty good and um, yeah I hope you uh, enjoy the episode thank you very much for downloading and uh, see you again next week when we will be doing Brighton which I think we've said we're doing next week for the last three weeks we will be doing Brighton next week here's James actually here's me and then James Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine, and I am delighted to be joined today, nay, thrilled to be joined, uh, by um, Mr. James Montague. Hello, James. Good morning.
1: How are you doing?
0: I'm okay. Um, I should say, for people listening, James is currently at his home in uh, in Serbia. In Belgrade, that's, yeah, yeah. And That's right, isn't it? That is where you live, I nearly. I thought I is,
1: well, uh, yeah, yeah, we like to keep that on the download, though, you know. <laughs>
0: Okay, fine. Um, and for those of you watching secret on Secret location,
1: a, a secret bunker somewhere. I think.
0: <laughs> but yeah, for those of you watching on YouTube, and in, incidentally, if you're just listening, we do uh, record these, the video of these as well and make them available on YouTube. So you'll be able to see the, the inner workings of uh, James's house. I can see a Daily Mail poster in the background there. That's there is. I mean, there. That's,
1: it's, a, it's a reminder of home. I mean, I'll point to the video. We've got, we got this Daily Mail map of Britain <laughs> just to remind me of what, what the United Kingdom and North Ireland would look like before the inevitable civil war in 2022 fueled by the Daily Mail no doubt Um, Mm. and then uh, I've got just various different uh, paraphernalia for my trip so this poster here comes from North Korea
0: what are the listeners Uh, seeing?
1: uh, they're seeing I'm literally pointing at posters and various different things on the wall and Mm. various uh, I'll point it to you as well because Joe's are down here I've also got the uh, the kind of uh, the two ayatollahs from Iran. <laughs> Lovely. From from, from, a, re, from a recent uh, Erdogan on a on a uh, you know uh, the the president of um, uh, Turkey or the leader yes. of Turkey. You've got him on a on a on a scarf somewhere. General tickets from games. Old map of Yugoslavia. Um, one of the illustrators from Tifo uh, knocked up from the meet the Bi- meet the owner series. Yeah. Uh, knocked up a kind of poster with all the. With all the owners on it, I can't remember. I think he called it a brim brimful of bastards. I think <laughs> that's Henry uh, Cook. I, I think isn't it? That's Henry Cook. So I'm going to bring it down, and so yeah. here, here here is a brimful of bastards, which oh, that's has nice. that's you can see Berlusconi in there, the Glazers, uh, Donald Trump, General. Well, this is General. quite a good
0: indication of. I mean, most of the people listening, I would imagine, who watch uh, Tifa videos, will be aware of uh, of who you are, James, because you've made. Videos are for TIFO for a while, also you're very well known generally in football journalism. Uh, the list of names that you've just reeled off there is probably quite a good way to uh, let people who don't know who you are understand your work. Um, I mean, your most recent book, I mean, you're working on a new one now, which is your most recent book is called The Billionaires Club, where you sort of, um, you go through and almost profile some of uh, football's wealthiest owners and some of the naughty things that they've done and are currently doing. Um, and before that, you've got a history of trekking all around the Middle East, all over the world, really, including North Korea that you mentioned recently. Um, do you, is, that, is that a fair estimation? Can you, can you tell people who uh, won't know who you are, how you're considered... I mean, you, you've been described as the Indiana Jones of football writing.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, I mean, it's a bit embarrassing, really. <laughs> <Is that. it laughs> why did you say that? I don't know. It's just, it, I don't know. It's just, I think it's that's one of the coolest, coolest characters I've ever I'm really I've embarrassed. Like, I know, like, no. Um, I mean, I'd love to look like Harrison Ford when he was 30. Sure, sure. What a dish. What a dish that man was. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, the last book was about money in football. But I guess the the, the kind of continual theme through all the kind of books I've written is kind of writing about underdogs and writing about underdogs in football. So 31 nil was about, you know, the worst teams in the world trying to qualify for the World Cup. I mean, it, it, Middle Eastern football, it was all about kind of these uh, teams, footballers, men and women, fans, all trying to kind of follow or win or play against kind of huge crushing circumstances that they find themselves in. And the Billionaires Club was kind of it's about the super rich taking over football, but it's also about the underdogs in a way, because it's it's mainly about the stories of the people that have been crushed by the machine as these kind of incredibly wealthy people who kind of made their money. Yeah. So um and then my next book is going to be about kind of football supporters and organized football supporters groups around the world and how it's grown, how it's spread into this international culture. You know, almost everybody you speak to there is, you know, by definition, an alter or a hooligan, or you know, they consider themselves on the fringes of society uh, or an outsider. Uh, sometimes, mm. that, most of the time, that's true. A lot of the time, it isn't. So, so yeah, kind of that's that's kind of my thing. Like a lot of travel, a lot of. Um, I just got back from Indonesia, uh, where the football culture is in, like absolutely incredible. By the way, I mean, you know, I was I went on an away trip with Persija, which is the fan like the the biggest club in in Indonesia. Uh, pretty much. I mean, I don't want to upset any Percy Bandung fans by, by saying that. I hope they don't kind of get upset with me because a group of them did chase me down a motorway with a bunch of machetes. But that I'm saving that story for the book. Um, but, the uh, yeah, I mean, we went on a 24-hour bus trip across the island of Java, and they took 12,000 people to an away game, you know, to, to a pre-season tournament. Yeah. So, so you know, and they get 70,000 fans every game. So it's... it's they kind of absolutely uh, obsessed with football uh, it's a country of quarter of a billion people very few people know anything about it you know and so you know that's kind of my jam like seeing seeing football you know in the most unusual places you could possibly go
0: it's interesting you, you know you're talking about the theme of um of the underdog and i suppose you know in in some of your travels some of your stories the underdog is is obvious it might be the palestinian national team for example but in um you know i was hoping to talk to you a little bit today about um some of the football league stories which include teams like manchester city and psg and i suppose do you think it's fair to say in some instances or at least in a kind of from a broader perspective looking forwards to the future that the an underdog in in these circumstances obviously there are others but might also include the fans
1: oh absolutely i mean i mean it's the ultimate underdog if you think about in the game if you just take away football teams nations or however you want to divide it up. I mean, the fact is the fans are at the bottom of the pile. They're the the most disenfranchised. They have the least power. Um, the game and the finances in the game have changed to the point where, you know, the people going to the games don't really wield any financial clout like they used mm. to. I mean, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, in the mid-2000s that the finances of the English football clubs in particular changed so that the, the amount of money coming from commercial television revenue outstripped, um, you know, fan revenue for the first time. And that was the important balance of power that changed. So now we have a situation where if you look across Europe, especially in Germany, and I, I, I wrote a, a TIFO script about fan activism in Germany and how it's been real, really successful in trying to keep The model of 50 plus one, which gives a lot of um, power to fans uh, within football clubs to keep it in place. In English football in particular, they don't have any of that. They don't have any buy-in to the the process, have zero ability to really change, especially in top level English football, uh, to change the situation around them. And, you know, uh, even this weekend, you know, we look at Tottenham Hotspur, you know, open their new stadium, had a soft opening for its first game. Uh, the new White Hart Lane, and you know everybody's falling over themselves to say how great it is, uh, and that it's very much modelled on the South Stand. Uh, one end is very much modelled on the South Stand, which is Borussia Dortmund's favourite, uh, famous yellow wall. Uh, but then what what is kind of like not mentioned in that tweet or in that public relations kind of blast is that it will cost eight hundred pounds for a season ticket there, which is four times more than what it will cost to go stand on the on the in the South Stand to stand in the yellow wall. So the fans, you know, especially in this age of inequality, especially in England, you know, very, very much the underdog.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take it back to to Manchester City as a, as a prime example, because they, alongside PSG, these two clubs are the ones that are probably most frequently mentioned um, alongside the football leagues, uh, with the idea of, of owners or ownership groups who have the... So sort of financial clout and ability to be able to challenge UEFA, and that, that seems to be the, the frightening thing that, that's, um, that's kind of coming out of the, of the latest uh, football league scandal. Um, let's take it right back to the beginning and, and explain the situation as it was. So uh, my understanding is that the reason that clubs like Manchester City and PSG were in trouble in the first place is as a result of financial fair play. If, that, if that's accurate, James, can you just explain to people who might be joining the
1: story at this point uh, how we've got to where we are now? Well, yeah, I mean, we've got to this point because in, we've always had very wealthy people involved in football. Um, you know, I mean, if you look back to AC Milan, Berlusconi um, taking charge in 1986, uh, then you have, you know, the fall of communism, which unleashes this kind of really the 1980s and 90s is a, an era of kind of massive wealth creation and wealth concentration, which we haven't really seen uh, before, certainly not kind of modern day capitalism. And so a lot of that money ends up in in football, you know, for good or for ill. And what happens really from kind of 2007, 2008 onwards is that we start seeing money coming into football, which is effectively state money. You know, these are states when Sheikh Mansour invests in Manchester City. I mean, this isn't private wealth. There's no such thing as private wealth when you get to kind of. Gulf autocratic regimes. This is money that comes from state uh, sources and has the backing of of the state. And that basically means it has almost unlimited money, unlimited power, and the kind of power that you would expect a state to have. You have the same with PSG uh, being owned by QSI, which is essentially, again, uh, owned by the royal family of Qatar. Now, what this means is, is that when rules are put in place by a body like UEFA, financial fair play it was brought in partly, you know, to restrict the power of of entities and owners like the royal family of Qatar, like the royal family of the UAE. But basically, it was also to stop com- uh, stop teams from running up debts, to spending money they do not have. And you can argue about um, financial fair play and and some of the problems with it. Does it entrench an elite already? Does it does it pull up the ladder behind it and stop people from? of breaking into the cartel i mean i think there is there is probably a strong case to say that is the case but the issue is that um it was also being incredibly successful um in trying to stop uh you know the top teams from running into huge financial problems when it comes to debt and so financial fair play uh, looked at kind of the spending of manchester city in particular Um, where where it ran the single biggest season deficit that's been seen ever. And clearly that it was spending much more than it was earning. And even Mm. then, if you look at the commercial deals that it was signing, it was signing commercial deals that seemed to be inflated at the time. Um, But they managed to make a convincing case to UEFA that Uh, these were market rates. But certainly with companies that if you know anything about the Middle East and the economy of the Middle East, and certainly of the Gulf states in the Middle East, these are companies where the same members of the same rural family were running those companies, whether it's Etihad, which is the national carrier of the United Arab Emirates, um, whether it was any number of other companies that have kind of invested in the Abu Dhabi Tourist Authority, any number of of, of individual companies, these are all connected to the same source, the same pot of money, effectively. Is there a kind of
0: culture clash here though, right? Because I suppose you could, and just to play devil's advocate for a minute. Someone could make the argument to suggest that, well, culturally, business is done differently in the Middle East to how it is in the Far East or how it is in America, for example. If if there were, you know, if, Amer- if an American company had invested in a big football club, it, it could be that one of their friends from Wall Street might might do them a favour by sponsoring the stadium, or you know, is is it? Are you sort of? I suppose football football has its own values, right? But when they don't reflect uh, particular regions of the world, or they reflect particular regions of the world, like Europe, for example, better than they do elsewhere, do you do you get to a sort of culture clash position?
1: Well, there, I mean, I think there definitely is a culture clash. I mean, that's that's how business is done there, and it's expect it's accepted when uh, entities from golf that have a lot of money and a lot of prestige and a lot of um, a lot of leverage. Uh, does business with Western institutions. We saw this a lot with China as well, when Chinese money started coming into European football. And and not just just football. I mean, you know, the past 10 years, Chinese companies have been on a massive asset splurge. You know, and then when you look at what these companies are and who owns them, and then you see the arm and the, the, you know, the, the guiding hand of the Chinese Communist Party... And, you know, it's a very opaque world of patronage and uh, approval. Uh, and it's a very, it's, that, that's something that you, you just don't really see out in the open in in a supposedly open kind of capitalistic business model run on the rule of law, like you would see, or in theory, see in London or New York or Paris or anywhere like that. So there is a culture clash. But the fact is, that, you know, th- these are the rules, you know, they're the rules that you wait for um have put in place uh manchester city agreed to them they were punished for transgressing them but what football leaks has done i mean they accepted it moved on you know and that was you know that that was it but what football leaks has done has shown that you know it was effectively what's been happening but under the surface is a sham you know um these uh, city haven't really you know come up against them they haven't said like these are wrong they've said that you know, the, these emails and documents were stolen, they were hacked, therefore they were illegally um, uh, obtained uh, obtained, and therefore uh, inadmissible in court, which I find kind of quite I, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but we've already seen several other cases when it comes to kind of uh, certainly uh, figures within La Liga and their tax affairs who have agreed kind of settlements or have been found guilty in courts based on the documentation or certainly based on the information that's been provided in these WikiLeaks, uh, sorry, in these uh, football leaks kind of documents. So Manchester City, you know, I, I mean, it looks like if these documents are genuine, um, if these documents say what they purportedly say and they're not taken out of context, which is what, what Manchester City is saying, it looks like they have been running a operation to undermine uh, first past the post, uh, sorry, uh, uh, financial fair play and to undermine, you know, to get around this system so that it can pump kind of un- almost unlimited amounts of money to achieve an end, which is success for Manchester City, which ultimately is success for Abu Dhabi and ultimately success for the United Arab Emirates. And as as a, as a way of uh, a kind of reputation laundering, which is a kind of very modern phrase that's come into parliaments recently to, you know, to show to, Manchester, to, to show you know ultimately this is nothing to do with manchester city this is about um, the club being used as a, as a as a tool effectively to massage the reputation of a of a emirate a royal family and of a country and a, and from what i've seen you know they they've, they've been caught completely red-handed and the most depressing thing about this entire uh, kind of scenario i think is that you know, if you go online and you see Manchester City fans and how their reaction to this is, it's all about tribalism. It's all just about, well, what about-ism? What about the other bad owners? What you know that this is you know they've taken they've taken the kind of drunk the, the Kool Aid that's been provided to them from the from their owners and I I just cannot understand. It. I yeah, but yeah, they've understand. got they've got
0: a hard draw, haven't they? I mean, in terms in terms of the, the luck of the draw when it comes to being a football fan, the vast majority of, of people, or at least who you know live locally, support a club because their their parents did, yeah. their dad did, or I mean, imagine and I feel a certain degree of sympathy for Manchester City fans at the moment because they are probably the only club in certainly in the Premier League to this extent that would you know you could argue could morally be required to make a statement other than what about but it's not an easy position to be put in is it particularly if you're someone who's not particularly up to date with current events and to be honest James like the the stuff that we're talking about is it's yeah it's complicated
1: and it's not it's not on everyone's reading list, you know. I I mean, it is complicated, but ultimately, you know, there are there are very simple facts here, which are from the documents. It looks like Manchester City cheated from the available data out there about what kind of regime is being run in the United Arab Emirates. Mm. It is a human rights abusing uh, place where there is zero, like very little freedom of speech. There is no democracy where torture is widespread, it's a surveillance society, it is not a place that you would want to hold up as a a paragon of moral virtue. And I think that these aren't... I mean, I think you're kind of almost... Denigrating people's ability to understand these things. It's not just just their ability to
0: understand it, though. I mean, the the point I'm making—that's part of it—is that people aren't. uh, Some people are deliberately not informed about it. The other part of it is that it's it's the reason I say it's a difficult position to be put in is because it's your football club all of a sudden completely out of your control. And you're supposed to. I, I, this person, I'm playing Devil's Advocate. I think it's the right thing to do, just to be clear. But I would find it. I would find it a difficult position to be put in to suddenly realize that I then I then had to participate in some kind of collective yeah. political I statement. Mean, I, at, but through, through no will of my own, other than a football club that I support at the weekends is suddenly bought by some people I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's a It's a difficult position for I, people to be in.
1: I mean, I, I appreciate that, but then going out to bat for them. I mean, I know that Twitter isn't real life, but you know, let's <laughs> say that this is one yeah that's that's way, the point one way of looking at at kind of the kind of reaction to it. Um, and when you see that reaction there, it's it, I mean, it's really it's really disheartening. It's it's one thing saying you know actually I don't care it's my football club, fair enough. Yeah, it's another to go out and bat for for the owners and for the kind of essentially the regime. And I find, I find that very difficult because I, you know, if I, you know, we had this with, we had this with Manchester city really 10 years ago with facts and Sinawatra, you know, and you know, there wasn't this level of uh, unanimity in its, in this, in the kind of, um, support for him, partly because he was running out of money and he was in all sorts of trouble with the military junta back in Thailand, partly because, you know, it, that season had started very well and tailed off at the end. So people were kind of quite happy to see the back of him. Um, but that that's that's the, 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 the takeaway that I've got from this is, well, there's two takeaways. One of them is that when you invite owners in who have the backing of the state, ultimately they have more power than any regulatory body can ever hope to have. And so, you know, UEFA are in a are staring down barrel of a gun here where, and this is openly said by Khaldun al-Mubarak in, the, in some of these, um, allegedly said in some of these emails, which Football League said they have taken from from them, or Football League's have taken from them, um, that that uh, they they would rather spend the money essentially destroying UEFA than than adhering to the rules and paying the kind of fines that they might might get, you know. And I've and, seen
0: that uh, sort of supported, cheerleaded by some supporters on the yeah, internet. I, you know, that, that that's, you bring it on UEFA, this is going to be a big fight. I mean, that, that's not
1: right. <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, I mean, I'm no fan of UEFA and I'm no fan of, of FFP really. But, you know, at the end of the day, this this kind of, this the moral relativism that goes on here to justify what's been going on is, is mad. And it's not like, you know and the way it's been. You know a lot of the framing of this I've seen is that that you know City are the plucky underdogs mm. that uh, are breaking into this cartel, and it's the big dogs in the football that. To and I'm like, no, the the royal family of Abu Dhabi in the UAE, are literally the richest people in the world. They are the furthest thing from an underdog that you could get. It's like calling the Queen an underdog. You know, there's just no way you can you can say that Manchester City are an underdog. I mean. You know, but from what I've seen, you know, there is very little case. There's little, very little defence, I think, City have. The issue is going to be, really, how far UEFA can push it. And with a lot of these documents that you've seen, you can see in the initial stories being released by Der Spiegel is how Gianni Infantino uh, goes back and forth with both, uh, you know, uh, Nasal Khalifi, uh, the, the nominal owner of... of uh, of PSG and also with Kaldunar Mubarak, the chairman of Manchester city and in a softly, softly approach because they know if they go too far, they will unleash the beast and they will, you know, be in a way uh, th- threatened with, with destruction. And mm. I think you can look, uh, I don't think you can look at this in isolation with what's happening at FIFA and what's happening with this uh, a global club world cup that's being introduced uh, because that is a direct challenge to UEFA as well. It's a direct challenge to the Champions League, um, and the people that are supporting that, the, where the money is coming from, from SoftBank, this Japanese kind of investment bank, which has uh, a huge amount of backing from Saudi Arabia and, of course, its ally, the United Arab Emirates. So this is a this is a this is a dirty war. This is a twin-pronged, multiple-pronged kind of um, Attack is probably too strong a word, but this is a multiple kind of layered, multi-layered kind of issue where I think City is just one part of it. And UEFA are stuck in the middle where they don't have the lawyers. They won't have the money to back it up. And at the same time, they're being undermined by FIFA and Infantino, who has Infantino has the ear, or I should say that the royal family of Saudi Arabia and the royal family of the UAE have the ear of of Johnny of Infantino, which is the only reason... You can imagine why he's pushing so fervently to expand the World Cup to 48 teams for Qatar 2022, knowing full well that he would have to expand that, knowing full well would have to expand that World Cup that would include either UAE or Saudi Arabia from hosting, probably not Saudi Arabia, given um, there'd, be, there'd be no ability to sell alcohol. I mean, there were also sponsorship issues. Uh, whether you know I mean it means nothing now but whether it would even pass its own human rights test of having games in in, uh, Saudi Arabia but the UAE certainly would be an option and so you know when I see what's happening to Manchester City and football leagues I see it connected to what's happening at FIFA the Club World Cup the future of the Champions League the potential for a global uh, Global Champions League, effectively, and what's happening with Qatar 2022 and, and the expanded World Cup—it's all—it's all part of the same game. Mm. Well, let's, let's maybe, maybe, let's maybe 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 I'm just being completely paranoid. Maybe this no, is all—you know, so. there's that there's that there's that mem somewhere of that actor, with a bo- which <laughs> looks a little bit like this board, to be honest. And I do—I'm just pointing out that I've got a board with lots of uh, things I use for my stories. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just a crank. Maybe I'm just a nut.
0: Yeah. Well, that would be funny. Um, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> uh, let's put some of that into into some context, though, because there's a lot of information there. Um, I suppose the first thing I wanted to say, you know, I was thinking before when you were talking, is to, to re- reiterate something that you said already, which is the thing that I found frightening about the Football League situation was... Um, what were those alleged threats against um, against UEFA by Kaldin Albarik? You know, and that the kind of the idea of that attitude uh, that someone or an organization would rather spend millions of money, millions of uh, pounds of money, which is uh, money which is essentially meaningless to them given their uh, yeah. you know, collective wealth, to destroy an organization rather than um, submit to its will. You know, and of course, fans of football and people in the world are so used to corruption it's not it's not a new thing it's existed for forever and i think certainly you know well, you can relate it to politics or football as well most people accept that there's a fair amount of it that goes on and they kind of they you know they sort of get a little bit a little bit numb to it, really. But the thing that frightened me about about the football league situation was was that idea that there was a there was a potential willingness to act in in that way as an aggressor against um, UEFA, which I think is is a slightly yeah. new way of looking at it. Um, the other thing I was thinking, you know, is to take it back to the kind of the moral argument, and I do I do want to get on to talking about the the potential expansion of um, of the World Cup. Because there's there's a lot more to that story, I think, than um, than than some people are aware of. But firstly, you know, I think the key question for me, and maybe for many people who are going into, you know, 2022, a couple of years time. Thinking, am I supposed to be watching the World Cup? You know, it struck me before that you were talking yeah. about you were talking about the idea of football having having values um, and obvious. You know, it's obvious to anyone who's looking that that there are regions of the world who who use football in Europe as a means uh, of kind of normalizing regimes or, or um, you know improving their uh, image on the international on the international scene. However, there is, a, there is another argument, which might be just the argument of devil's advocate, maybe not, um, that hosting the World Cup in places like Qatar actually exposes Qatar to Western values or European football's values. I don't really, you know, it's hard to sum up what, what they are, but do you, do you see what I mean? Does it work both ways? Like uh, While Qatar own PSG and, you know, they soften their image, can, can it work the other way as well?
1: I'm a universalist. So I believe in universal values. I don't believe these are Western values. I mean, many things we think are Western values are actually values that have come from from the East. To use a, to use a kind of phrase that's very Western centric, you know. I mean, mm. the first ever human rights uh, kind of document wasn't wasn't in the West. It was in it was in a, modern day Iran. It was the Cyrus Scroll. Mm. You know, the Persian Empire. F- for me, there. So I. I, I mean, I'm. I have quite a complicated, not complicated view, but I've, I've been following Qatar, really. So I first went to Qatar in 2004 and started to see the roots of this um, kind of policy of using sport as a way of kind of jumping into the international arena as a player um, and using sport as a vehicle to do that, to remodel itself, to reimagine itself. And also as a, as a real soft power tool. I mean, it's a it, it, it really, when you have... When you're hosting World Cups, when you're hosting World Athletic Championships, when you're hosting a big name uh, like in Bahrain F1 Grand Prix, this gives a lot of cachet and and it embeds yeah. your countries culturally and financially in with kind of uh, kind of international institutions, and then you know you 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 become kind of embedded into the fra- into the fabric of. Of the international community, and it Presumably, it very there's successful. a reason
0: they start with the richer sports, the F1, tennis, these sorts of things. Is it because they're trying to encourage a certain type of clientele to visit Qatar?
1: Part, I mean, partly. I mean, this isn't just Qatar. This is this was the Dubai. Firstly, and yeah. was by far like in the in the 2000s was by far the most uh, visible of the Emirates. I mean, Abu Dhabi was very much the place, the capital, the quiet place, the, all the money was there because all the oil reserves are in Abu Dhabi. And there's, a, a, and there's also a kind of a friction between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. I mean, there are seven emirates within the United Arab Emirates. And there's, you know, the country has only really existed for 40 years. And Sheikh Zaid, the, the kind of well, very well respected elder statesman who, who died a few years ago, um, you know, was very much respected for the way he brought those seven royal families together to create, this country, but they've, they you know, it doesn't mean that it's a, it's a country without having friction between the two. And so, Qatar, sorry, uh, uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, for much of the 2000s, there was a bit of a friction about the fact that Dubai was so successful at uh, rebranding itself that most people thought that it, and not Abu Dhabi, was the capital of the UAE. Most people, actually, if you ask them, thought that Dubai was a country in itself. So. What I saw was this, how sport was used very, very uh, intelligently to try to kind of re- remodel itself. Um, but what's happened with Qatar and the World Cup was that, that because they had years of doing this through golf, through through football, through sponsorship, through all sorts of different methods, that they they spent so much time wanting to host something like the World Cup and before it, the Olympic Games, which they had a crack at trying to host as well, they didn't make it to the final round. Um, I think it was for the 2006 Olympic Games. Um, but they didn't. They, I don't think they were prepared for what hosting the World Cup really meant, which was a huge amount of scrutiny about not only how you achieved that, but what your country is up to. And um, they, they were not prepared for that. And so almost as soon as they won that, that vote in 2010, Um, which was, I didn't find it a surprise because the way that FIFA was going at that time under, under said Blatter, he's very much a globalist. He talked about the Middle East having its first world cup. Um, They had a very impressive um, kind of beard and uh, story about why it should get the world cup. But um, as soon as they got it, you know, they weren't prepared for this. Nobody had really mentioned about kafala this system of slavery essentially which would be used to build all the stadiums which by the way builds all the buildings in the middle east in the gulf in particular um especially in dubai in abu dhabi in saudi arabia uh, in bahrain um, Will you explain but, the system james yeah the kafala system is basically you are effectively you're owned by your your employer um is completely responsible for you so it literally means sponsorship in arabic so um what that means is, is that like, even I lived in Dubai for for three years. And so even I was under confined. Everybody is under confined. Everybody is sponsored by their employers. But what happens when you get to the lower uh, kind of reaches of kind of the, the building trade where, you know, the, I think 50, 60, 70% in these countries of the foreigners in a country are low wage laborers. Um, Living in labour camps uh, in appalling conditions, working in appalling conditions, working in absolutely uh, working for terrible wages, uh, often are effectively indentured slaves because all of them would have borrowed money to pay an agent to get there. And the agents are taking cuts of money and and sending money to the kind of people who are signing these documents in Middle Eastern countries. So it's just a horrible global system of exploitation. Um and so uh, what it means is that these people are trapped because they effectively have their passports taken away in many cases. They are effectively owned by their employers. They can't change jobs. They can't leave the country without their permission. And so it leads with that power in the hands of employers, it has led to the most extreme form of exploitation imaginable. Now, when I was in Dubai in 2004 onwards, trying to write about that was like, like walking into a wedding with shit on your shoes. You know, it was like say, it was like they didn't want to hear like Dubai and the UAE and Qatar. These are great stories, right? This is a story that like, people come to work there to earn a little bit of money, um, you know, a little bit of hardship. And then they go back to their home countries and build a house and don't have to work again. Right. It was like it was like selling the American dream. You know, the, you know um, the poor Irish, poor uh, Italians, poor Polish people going there, working hard, but, you know, they're a part of the American dream. The problem was that in the UAE and, and uh, in particular, there was no American dream. There was no UAE dream. You would never be a citizen. Uh, you will never be uh, cast. You will never become an equal. You will always be an outsider and you will always be kicked back home the moment we finished with you. But the problem is this system of exploitation, has led to, um, you know, it was it was completely normalised, even in the Western media. I remember a uh, there's a newspaper that was started called the National, uh, which was kind of when it started with big fanfare, it employed loads of like very well known Western journalists to become the New York Times of the Middle East, right? And the editor, who's a former editor at the Times, I remember seeing an email of him sending out like, if anybody sends in an example of work that was to talks about worker rights in Dubai, bin it. You know, that's an old story. We don't want to hear that story. That, that's a cliched story. Whereas actually, that's the biggest story there. That is the, the, the biggest carbuncle on the side of kind of modern day capitalism is this system of slavery that exists, like that destroys the lives of millions and millions and millions of men and women across the world. Um, and so nobody wanted to know anything about it. And then so that changes in 2010. Qatar gets the World Cup and suddenly under, you know, and by the way, I've spoken to hundreds of workers uh, in these camps. I've gone into these camps myself. Um, when you speak to them, speak to workers who are trapped effectively. Um, and I've spoken to them in, in, in Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and in uh, and in Qatar and in Bahrain. Qatar was always the place that people wanted to go rather than Dubai because they were treated better. Uh, the worst place to go would be Saudi Arabia, and then after that, Dubai would be would be the second worst. Um, and this, the the only reason why the Western media have paid any attention whatsoever to the issue of Kafala, this great moral issue of our time, is because of the Qatar twenty twenty two World Cup. And they had no idea that it was coming, and they had no idea that they would be criticised for it, and they were they weren't prepared, and they certainly didn't make it an issue. Uh, at the time, they were bidding for the World Cup that this is, oh, you know, uh, this World Cup will allow us to kind of reform our system. No, they weren't prepared for it. And they've been forced, they've been forced to reform their system, which has begun. There has been a, a conversation about reform. Very real changes have come in. What are the extent
0: enough. of the of the reforms to the kafala so,
1: system? So, Well, the, so the big one is the the promise to actually abolish kafala so that there's there is a contractual uh, system in place where you have a contract with your employer not not that you are completely you responsible your, your employer is completely responsible for you so that is a huge change i mean they're talking about uh, abolishing exit visas um, the the standard of accommodation the that the, there's a minimum wage uh, which is isn't very high but one of the big issues within Uh, the kafala system is that it's essentially racist, that uh, depending on which country you came from, you could be doing the same job, but you'd get different wages within the same workforce. So they would exploit uh, poorer countries and pay lower wages. So if you were Bangladeshi, you were bottom of the pile. You know, you got paid the lowest. If you were Indian, you probably got paid the most out of all the other kind of workers. And that was largely down to the amount of pushback that embassies would would give uh, that country when it came to giving them their kind of labor so the so the Indian embassy was a little better at like actually don't exploit our workers whereas in Bangladesh where remittances are absolutely without remittances the the, the economy would collapse it's the biggest source of foreign direct investment is from its own workers sending money home so they they're pretty much like yeah do it once you're out of there do what you like just send your money home so because of that the wages could have completely decreased so um they've brought in uh like a, a promise to universally uh, repay agency fees which is a huge issue because nobody can really get employed for these jobs without without going to an agency in their home country so it's it's a lot of promises um but there have been kind of direct improvements in the living standards of people and the wages of people. I've spoken to workers. I keep in contact with them on on WhatsApp that I've met over the years and you know, they, they have seen an improvement in their conditions, but as always, it's, it's often the change in the law is not enough. Mm. What happens next is you have to enforce that law. And when you have a very small society like Qatar, um, you know, that is connected tribally to the rural like everybody's connected everybody knows it. it's like being it's like living in a in a small british town effectively you know or in kind a of medium-sized british town you know the 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 the, the connections between people and they're having a kind of rule of law that that governs everything is very very difficult indeed um to maintain so there's been a lot of promises a lot of changes have been promises there have been some tangible movements on the ground but it's not enough and their feet have to be kept to the fire every moment until that World Cup takes place. Because I can tell you, this conversation about reform is not taking place in Dubai. It's not taking place in Abu Dhabi. Um, it's not taking place in Saudi Arabia. So, so in that respect, the World Cup, you know, has accidentally had one very positive outcome or potentially one positive outcome. But my God they've had to be dragged kicking and screaming (laughs) to 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 make the outcome happen
0: so what does it mean am i supposed to watch it what am i supposed to think or feel when it comes to 2022 because that's that's a big question that i haven't answered yet i don't know why i'm i don't know what i'm supposed to do
1: i mean i having lived in the gulf and having reported from the gulf and you know having in and out of you know the middle east for over a decade really you know i've i've Always be fascinated what a World Cup in Qatar would look like. You know, it is, it will be a, a markedly different type of World Cup. Um, I would love people to spend some time around Middle East and Arab Muslim culture, because it's not this scary, monolithic thing that people think it is. You know, people have this, especially with kind of rampant Islamophobia in the West. Um, I, I would love people to see a different side of the Middle East and not just in, in, in Qatar, uh, not just in the UAE or Oman. If they if they hold matches in Oman, that'd be amazing. Oman is one of the most probably the most beautiful country, single most beautiful country I've ever been to. You know, um, but it's it's a it's a wonderful, rich, welcoming uh, culture, and I'd love people to see that through the World Cup. Um, saying that, it's going to be at the moment. There's been a, an added layer of intrigue going on because Gianni Infantino. Suddenly, at the last minute, effectively in infrastructure terms, wants to increase the World Cup hmm. from thirty-two teams to forty-eight teams, which doesn't make any sense. Um, okay, well let's
0: let's let's um let's yeah. talk about that that now then. I think we can I think we can finish on that because it's a, it's a big idea. Um and it, you know it, it, it go back to the beginning of our conversation. We were talking about Manchester City and PSG. I think it would be useful for listeners, James, if you were able to uh, briefly sort of explain, um the conflict that is currently uh, occurring between Abu Dhabi and Qatar and, and also Saudi Arabia on the, on the side of Abu Dhabi. That, I think that would be useful context for people.
1: Yeah. So over the past kind of 15 years, um, I mean, you have this thing called the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is all the Gulf countries have this talking shop um, over the past 15, 20 years. Gulf countries have become incredibly wealthy. Um, largely because of oil. In Qatar's case, gas. I mean, Saudi Arabia has long been the largest kind of producer of of of, uh, of oil in the world. I mean, I know Venezuela has larger stocks, but yeah, I mean, yeah, they've got become incredibly wealthy off the back of it, and a lot of the smaller Gulf states have been playing catch up. But Saudi Arabia is the you know is the power in the region. Now, what's happened as those countries, especially Qatar, have got wealthier, is that they've used that power and that money in different ways. And so Qatar has often walked a different path to how the UAE and Saudi allies would walk. So one of the main things that happened was when um, uh, uh, Hamid, the previous emir of Qatar, came to power in a bloodless coup in 1995, one of the things that uh, the first things he did was abolish the information ministry, abolished censorship and uh, put in place the money to fund Al Jazeera, uh, Al Jazeera Arabic, which is very different from Al Jazeera English. Now what that did was immediately you had a, a news organisation that wasn't afraid to report on the goings on in all the other royal families around the region. It never reported on the Qatari royal family that was off limits, of course, but it, it has been a thorn in the side of autocratic rural families and regimes in the Gulf, who do not accept criticism in any way. Part of that we can see in how Khaldun al-Mubarak responded to the idea of being kind of held back in any way by UEFA. And you see that in the way that uh, the UAE operates in any uh, of sphere. For instance, another example of Khaldun al-Mubarak was when um, uh, they essentially there was a leak of documents to the Guardian that allegedly showed that Khaldun al-Mubarak effectively threatened the British government uh, that it would... It would uh, stop certain kind of arms contracts uh, unless it designated the Muslim uh, Brotherhood as a terrorist organization or moved towards recognizing the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is a is a Islamist organization that is seen as an existential threat to the regimes in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But the Qataris supported Brotherhood um uh, revolutions during the Arab Spring, so in it, or, or Brotherhood-inspired revolutions in the in the Arab Spring in Syria, Libya, especially in Egypt, and what that has done is put Qatar on a, on a different side, uh, in, or, almost in opposition in many cases in these conflicts to the UAE, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia. And after many different diplomatic breaks, what that led to eventually um, was. A a full blown break, whereas Qatar was accused of supporting terrorism, which is an absurd uh, charge, really, compared to, you know, the fact that the UAE money from the UAE and Saudi Arabia has for years gone into the pockets of uh, Al Jazeera and other kind of extreme Islamist groups. But they used that as a as a as a pretext to to break uh, all contact with Qatar with the support of the new president of the United States of America at the time, Donald Trump. So we had this diplomatic crisis, which the Qataris call the blockade. Um, and what that it does essentially is, you know, they cut off all air links or road links or trade links. And the World Cup, of course, is supposed to take place in 2022. People are worried about what happens to that. But Qatar has effectively weathered that financial storm quite well. And as this crisis has rumbled on... It's become clear through reporting, leaked documents that I've seen as well, that the World Cup in 2022 has become now the focal point of political powers in Saudi Arabia and the UAE to try to have that taken away from Qatar by besmirching it in, in the European press uh, or by having them share it. That seems to be how, you know, the, the blockade hasn't worked. And so now the focus is very much on Qatar 2022, which has become... The kind of lightning rod issue, through which either those people can give uh, those regimes can give Qatar a bloody nose, or they could end this blockade by sharing. Mm. So yeah. it's so suddenly you have Infantino coming out with a 48 World Cup for 2022. Actually, it wasn't Infantino; it was the the, the, the South American Confederation uh, originally placed this on the agenda at one of the FIFA meetings. 18 months ago which is doesn't make any sense. I mean South America even if you had an expanded world cup there are like how many more South American teams are you going to get there? You're going to are you not going to have yeah. qualification in South America anymore. It, it it was the it was the confederation that would benefit least from an expanded world cup. So it smells of something. Forward, so it smells of something and then you you see at the world cup you see at the opening ceremony Saudi Arabia playing uh, you know uh Russia, Russia. And you have Infantino in the middle with Putin to one side. And you have, you know, um, and you have Mohammed bin Salman, you know, the crown prince, uh, who has essentially assumed kind of the most power in Saudi Arabia at the moment as the crown prince of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, has done. Um, And then so, you know, between them, it looks like somehow, bearing in mind that a lot of the money that is, is, that is, going to eventually be coming for this 25 billion revamp of the of the club world cup seems to be coming indirectly from from UAE and Saudi Arabia it seems like that, that they have got to their man and they have found a way to try to undermine Qatar and its most prestigious kind of not just sporting event but probably its most prestigious foreign policy kind of element that it has invested so much money and capital in over the past kind of 10 years
0: I mean, when you put it into uh, put it into context like that, it does sound quite uh, frightening. Also, you know, from a step back, it's kind of amusing as well because what we have uh, just talked about over the last hour, James, is an example. And again, this, you know, much of this is alleged, and it's you know, it cut, much of the information that we've just 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 just, just, oh, just discussed comes from uh, the, the football leaks documents, for example, which most of which were published by Der Spiegel. Um, so, you know. Bear that in mind. However, what you have just described really is uh, one organisation who, on the one hand, are sort of threatening to uh, overthrow the the what would you describe them as the kind of uh, the parent organisation of the sport they've chosen to participate in, and on the other hand, simultaneously um, alluring themselves to another. Uh, parent organization, i.e., FIFA, and at the same time uh, potentially striking the kind of winning winning blow in an information battle with local rivals all through all through football. All of these through yeah. sort of major global things all coming through the, the football.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and and so your original question is, should I watch Qatar twenty twenty two? And you know, initially, I'm watching it now. I'm watching it now, but I mean, I mean, this is probably one of the most interesting single. Stories I've ever worked on. I mean, this is this isn't this isn't about football. I mean, that ball hasn't been kicked even in qualification. I mean, qualification is being. I mean, they've agreed at the Miami meeting that they're gonna, you know, uh, that that they just had in Miami, the FIFA Council. They're gonna now look at the feasibility study that Qatar does, but they want to expand it to forty-eight teams to to the to the next World Cup. We haven't even had qualification yet. Qualification should have begun in March, but yeah. of course it can't it can't begin until people know how many teams and what the qualification would then, that, it, it, it will change what the qualification would look like. So now it will go to, I think it's June or July, and there's going to be a, a final decision. And, I, I, you know, I've got contacts in in Qatar, and they're not, they're, that's this is the last thing they're going to do. They're not going to expand it. They're going to do everything in their path to stop it. Um, and then FIFA has another problem, which is if you then force Qatar to do it, or force the World Cup away from Qatar... Qatar is the richest per capita country in the world. Again, FIFA will be destroyed. Well, they're by caught between the, legal... the rock
0: and a hard place, right?
1: Exactly. Well, they are. But, I mean, Infantino's very much hitched his wagon, you know, with the Saudis and with the UAE, I think. I mean, from what it looks like, it looks how 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 he's acted about this $25 billion uh, investment, how he tried to railroad it through the, the FIFA council, Uh, without any without actually saying to the other people on it we i I cannot tell you any more information about it i can't even tell you who's behind it because these are commercially sensitive or or, uh, uh you know uh facts i can't tell you anything about it just sign it it will be okay you know and then and then the next you know you know we this 48 team world cup thing doesn't make any sense it makes sense for the usa canada and mexico It's a big country. These are three big countries. It's a vast World Cup. Um, It will have space. It will have time. If you're going to expand it, you should expand it then. Why bring it now? Why bring it forwards? I understand, you know, for for individual confederations, of course they're going to be in favour of it because it means more chance for them to qualify for a World Cup, which means more money, more investment, more funds for their for their federation. It makes it makes sense. Of course, they're 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 gonna vote for it if they can do it. But why push this from FIFA's angle is is completely nuts. And so you always have to look at the ultimate, you know, motivation here, which is money. But we have this, you know, hard political reality that once you bring states into football with unlimited money, unlimited power, and unlimited state power, you know, the the these small fry international sporting regulatory bodies are they're like flies they could be swatted away they have zero power they thought they had power but up against russia up against qatar up against saudi arabia up against the uae up against the u.s it's nothing and also given
0: given that their um popularity with fans is nil anyway they've got nowhere to fall back to right
1: well, I mean, this is part, they've made a rod for their own backs here because, you know, you need a strong FIFA. You need a strong UEFA because, you know, there are so many kind of worse forces out there. You need a strong regulator. I mean, if you read Moneyball um, by Michael Lewis, you know, that that's pretty much... Not Moneyball, sorry, uh, the Big uh, uh, the Big, the big short. short. If you read the Big Short, you know, what, what's his conclusion at the end of it? It's like, you know, you need, you know, usually with the, the problem with modern western capitalism is that so much power is put in the hands of regulators right that they they will somehow um adjudicate or control or or be in charge of police a certain market but actually what we have in this kind of 21st century regulatory capitalism is is the worst people who do those jobs you know the yeah. people who can't get a job in those banks end up end up being the regulators on 30 grand a year no, what you need is you need the, the the whiz kid trader, right? Who knows what these people are going to be doing. And you need to pay them a million pounds a year so that they can catch the other people doing it. It's the same in football. You need to have the smartest people in the room. You need to have the smart, you know, you need the people who know, uh, you know, exactly what these people do and pay them accordingly. And it's such an unpopular position to take that you need a strong UEFA, a strong FIFA with high wages, to, to pay for kind of the best lawyers and the best people to, and they've got the cash reserves to do it, but it's yeah. the only way, the only way we're going to, you know, I think the moment is lost, frankly.
0: Well, yeah. I, think the only I mean, way- sorry, I was, I was just going to say, I suppose one, one final th- thought from you really would be on, on the moment uh you know because it, you know, it feels it feels sort of def- deflating to me when, when we have conversations <laughs> like this sorry man sorry i love it as well i don't, I don't think, mean
1: i don't mean to i don't mean to upset everybody no I mean, no just, well, no but it's, it's,
0: the thing is it's very it's it's it's, it's 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 very entertaining as well. Like as you, as you describe what we've just talked about over the last hour, and you described as you know the best story you've ever worked on. It's quite everything there. You know, you and I have joked before that this is kind of it's perfect for a kind of for an and film or something. Or all of the threads are there. And what what's strange to me is that it seems. So obvious once you once you you know watch ATF video for example the one that you made on the you know the Qatar's information war which is available on the YouTube channel if anyone wants to do kind of further watching go go and watch that one because it's it's a lot of what we've discussed today but it's not hard to 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 sort of thread the lines together in this story it's not like you know i mean there's obviously been some incredible uh investigative work that's given us the facts for us to be able to 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 do this me the layman understand it um but it's there now it's available to see and anyone looking can see that that's what's happening so why doesn't anyone care i mean that's (laughs) I know it's not everyone, I mean, people- and I know people do, but but g- generally there seems to be a sort of mass... And to go back to what you were saying at the beginning of this podcast, not only a mass apathy, but also a, an appetite in some cases to defend the actions. It seems to be Messi-Ronaldo on a grand scale. And they're, 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 you either come up against this, this sort of feeling of, as I described before, deflatedness against the most powerful organisations, the richest people in the world what are you going to do? It's been like this for, you know, the last 100,000 years. What do you want me to do? Or people who don't seem to have a moral compass, who can't wait for Man City to, you know, take down FIFA so they can make a YouTube video with capitalised UEFA's been ruined in, you know, capital letters and and laugh about it with their friends. I don't understand where the sort of middle ground is and why more people aren't.
1: Uh, Do you follow me? Yeah, I mean I, I I have no idea. I literally have no idea. I don't know, you know, I don't know where it's headed to. I don't think it's headed towards anywhere good because it's um, such a it's an
0: amazing, I'm sorry to interrupt again. You know what? Yeah. I'm just going to the, the whole the whole point that the World Cup might be expanded as a result of some potentially allegedly dodgy dealings uh, to strike a kind of victory blow in an information war that's been going on for 15 years. That's massive, right? And it's fascinating. It's really interesting. And everyone I talk to about it either doesn't know already or doesn't care. And it's not on every front page of every newspaper. I don't understand.
1: Well, I mean, uh, there's one reason for that, I suppose, or one of many reasons, I suppose. That's Brexit. I mean, that's that's on. I mean, that's pretty big deal at the moment. Everyone's mm. been. But even that, even if you talk about Brexit, which is water. I mean, even from Serbia, I've got water, water coverage of Brexit. You know, and actually, if you ask people back home i speak to my parents back in lowestoft you know no no, no one's really taking it in you know it's, it's it's in the background when it becomes when you know when the deadline passes and something bad happens then it will be on people's people's minds yeah. same thing at the moment with the american like the democrat um you know who's going to be the democrat nominee for the uh for twenty twenty presidential well, of, of the
0: you
1: know, 60 nominations of the you know of the thousands of nominations that have come forward you know <laughs> and and people are like oh you know uh biden and and uh and uh bernie are like you know 20 they're on 23 percent each you know they're leading the And it's like well actually they're asking very small sample sizes and nobody cares yet it's so far in the distance nobody actually cares about what's going on i mean it is going to take a a part I think there's two issues. One is that it's been partly it's been quite muddied the water about like, who's the good guy here and who's the bad guy here. I mean, almost right. everybody is both in yeah. some respects. That's why it's such it's a in,
0: compelling story,
1: though. I, I, and it's important. It's very difficult to thread your thread your way through. You know, I mean, you, it's going to take some some pretty fantastical uh, expose, really to. To change it. But I mean, even if you say, OK, well, we've we've discovered that this is we've discovered that the 48 team World Cup you know, has been some kind of some underhand dealings. Right. On the Then who benefits from that? Well, Qatar benefits from that. And then if you look at all my reporting of the past kind of five years, I've been incredibly critical of Qatar <laughs> and of its system of government. Should Qatar be rewarded for that? You know, then if Qatar gets the World Cup taken away from it, who, who benefits from that? Yeah, this is but this the is Saudi Arabia, and you know. so it's, I think it's, a, it's an impossible moral conundrum. But you've always got to yeah. just follow the truth and hope to That's it. and hope to get somewhere approaching, like somehow untangling this. And I think it's going to take. I think it's going to take, you know, even even after this World Cup, um, when it when a it eventually takes Netflix place. And, I mean, it, yeah, I mean it's going to be. That's, that's quite a good idea. Um, yeah, it's, gonna, it's, 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 it's gonna take it's gonna take years and years and years to undo this, and I think um, you know w- when you have these powerful actors using all the resources that that's available to them, you know I'm I'm not surprised that people are confused by by the messages that are coming out about it, and and it's it just I mean again it shows you football's always been very very important. Uh, to To the powerful, it always has been, but this this is just next level shit, really. You know, this is this is unbelievable how much resources, time, political capital uh, have been have been sunk in the past kind of two World Cup, kind of Russia as well, by the way. But everything that happens in that room on December the first, I think it was December the first, two thousand and ten. You know, I think it, it 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 takes football and puts it into a new stratosphere when it comes to kind of its importance politically and financially
0: yeah yeah okay <laughs> it's always it's always a pleasure talking to you man oh, um, on that bombshell thank you very much for, for joining us i really appreciate it um i just just again as i said at the beginning james' is, um has been writing scripts for tifo videos for a while now there's a, a series called Meet the Owners in which he profiles uh, various uh, football club owners. It's very interesting. Um, there's a lot of Middle Eastern stuff. If you have a flick through uh, the YouTube channel, I'm sure you'll see all of it. Um, James, is there anything? I mean, you're writing an, an, another book at the moment, isn't there? Is there anything else you would like to talk about or plug before we go? No. no. <laughs> not, not till I've finished. <laughs> not, not Just... Also, not at the end of it. feels a bit um, uh, insincere, doesn't it, to plug things uh, at the end of a podcast like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, the, yeah, I'm in the middle of book hell at the moment. So I hate myself and everything I do and everything I write. So, yes, OK, so no. well, I'll but say you for you, on about... your
0: behalf, then I will say that if you enjoyed listening to James today or if you enjoy watching uh, James's TIFO videos or indeed reading anything else that he writes, which is freely available, then please consider um, going to buy one of James's books because they're absolutely fantastic um so i mean i think you've got oh, three think- haven't you but they're all available yeah. on, on amazon or in james's website or you know the billionaires club is the most recent one it's a lovely it's a lovely way in it really is uh, so do go and do that um james thanks so much for for joining us and uh, we'll uh, speak to you again soon
1: it has been a pleasure thanks man